I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to Livewire Radio. I am backstage, as always, here at Revolution Hall, getting ready to do the show. We're in Portland, Oregon, and we've got a great one coming up for you. Our guests are Asif Manvi from The Daily Show. Plus, we have music from a really cool trio called Joseph. It's not just a dude named Joseph. It's three women who sing incredible harmony. You're definitely going to want to check this out. Plus, we have a guy named Wallace J. Nichols here. He's a marine biologist, okay? And he noticed one day that he just felt so relaxed when he was near the water that something seemed to almost physically change for him. So he went to find out if there were any books on the subject. Turns out there weren't. So he ended up writing the book. It's called Blue Mind. And we're going to sit down with him and find out why it is that we all seem to feel such a difference when we're near the water. So we got a lot coming up. Don't go anywhere. It all starts right now. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Recorded in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire! With author and Daily Show correspondent, Austin Bonby, Blue Mind author, Wallace J. Nichols, and music from the band, Joseph, plus our amazing house band. And now, the host of Livewire, he holds the record for most angry parents at the Arcadia Community Pool's audience cannonball contest, it's Luke Burbank! Thank you very much, Alex Falcone. Thank you, everybody, for coming out here to Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. We have got a heck of a show in store for you. Uh, The theme we've picked for this hour is to dive right in. Uh, We've got a guy who's a marine biologist who wrote this really interesting book, The Science Behind Why We Feel the Way We Feel Around the Water, Why We Feel Relaxed and Focused and all of those things. I was thinking about that That phrase, dive right in. That's what you're supposed to do in life, right? You're supposed to dive right in. You're supposed to go for it. And I actually tend to dive right into things, and it's not always great. In fact, on this show, I have a habit of diving right into things conversationally, maybe too much, because I am deathly afraid of silence happening. (laughs) Kind of like that that just happened, (laughs) but even quieter. I was listening to Fresh Air this week, and Sarah Silverman was on. It was a great interview, right? Holy mackerel. She said that one of the biggest things that changed her ability to do comedy and to be successful with comedy was being more okay with the silence during her act. Those moments when nobody's laughing. That is my idea of a nightmare. (laughs) Because if I can't hear you laughing... I can't hear you not hating me. (laughs) I need the constant sound of knowing that I'm okay because I have a lot of problems. And it is really, for me, almost a phobic thing. And there's a lot of anxiety around it. And one of the things they do when people have phobias of things is called exposure therapy. Don't worry, the clothes stay on. It's where they expose you to the thing that is making you anxious so that you can experience it and eventually your level of anxiety goes down. So what I was wondering is if 
we could do a little exposure therapy here and just try to sit in total silence for 10 seconds. Are you, are you guys up? Are you guys up for this? All right. Here we go. Starting now. How long was that? It was like 45 seconds. It was killing me. It's the longest amount of time that I could be quiet. Because I feel like if we're just sitting here quietly, your brains are going to start to wander and they will eventually end up at, how much weight has Luke gained? I know that's what's going to happen. Um, okay, seriously, 10 seconds. Here we go. Starting now. There it is, 10 seconds. We did it, you guys. Oh, my God. How do you guys feel? I feel terrible. That was really terrifying for me, but I'm also not dead, which is kind of subconsciously what we think might happen, right, when there's stuff that makes us feel anxious, when there's things that we're avoiding. On some level, even though it's irrational, the young part of ourselves has this sort of feeling like, hey, that might kill me. And the fact that, that didn't kill me is very empowering to me right now. But I just realized that everybody listening to this show on the radio just changed the station <laughs> because they thought the station went off the air, which makes that a terrible idea. But I feel, I feel better, and I think that's the important thing at the top of the show. Um, see how long I'm letting this go? I'm totally cured. This is great. All right. Let's get Asif Manvi out here, please. You might know Asif. You might know Asif as the senior foreign-looking correspondent on The Daily Show. Or from HBO, where he's a writer and actor on The Brink, which is a comedy series based on the geopolitical crisis in Pakistan, which we're sure just breezed past the suits at the network, Hogan's Heroes style. No, they're nice Nazis. It's really funny. It's going to be a laugh riot. What you might not know is that Asif made his television debut as a doorman in an episode of Miami Vice, playing a bouncer. We're all about deep cuts here on Livewire. Please welcome Asif Manvi to Livewire. Hi, Asif. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, you've got a book out called No Land's Man, yes. which talks about your upbringing, which involved uh, living in England and then moving to America. But let's start with the England part. Can you mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about Bradford, England, where you grew up? So Bradford, England is uh, a city... Uh, are there any English people here? <laughs> Two. <laughs> there was one and then a child. There was yeah. like, it was like... You, you. Yeah. <laughs> I heard uh, one monocle fall out. <laughs> Bradford is in the north of England in West Yorkshire, and it is a um, uh, sort of an industrial uh, coal mining town covered in soot, and um, and that's where I that's where my parents decided to emigrate to uh, from India, and that's where I grew up. Why did your parents pick that town of all places? Because my dad, uh, he got a job there. He basically got a job at the university in Bradford. You went to a British boarding school when you were over there, and yeah. reading about your experience, these places sound terrifying and illegal. Yeah, they are. They are. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's quite the same anymore. I think uh, when I was a kid going to boarding school, it was literally like... It was like Harry Potter, but without all the flying and the witchcraft and everything. But it was kind of like that. Like, we all wore... The teachers all wore robes, and, you know, we all... Like had, it was very sort of strict and academic and, and kind of gothic, you know, um, and, 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 and racist, to be honest. Yes, yeah, so quite, much It was racism. quite racist. So, like, if you're an Indian kid... Growing up in that environment, it was it was hell. It was it was it was not. It's not the funniest part of the book, but it's it's definitely it's tr it's the truest part of the book, actually. So you go from living in England in this, as you mentioned, coal mining town and boarding schools and all yeah. this stuff, and then you go to Tampa, Florida, when you're 16. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
That's nobody. like the only time there's in the book. Even, there's one person from Devon, but there's nobody here from Tampa. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is like the one time I've been reading a book where I'm like, thank God this guy got to Tampa. <laughs> Yeah, it really, it was, it was a culture shock. It was definitely a different world, you know. I went from, like, that world of the industrial northern English coal mining boarding school to, like, this high school in Tampa where people were wearing short shorts and riding around on skateboards and basically nobody actually studied anything. It was just kind of sun and, you know, it's Florida, so, like, it's, the weather's too nice, you know. Um, it, was, it was weird. It was definitely... But I will say, like, growing up in England as a, as a kid, like, as an Indian, as an immigrant, you realize that, like, you're never going to be British. Like, the British have a certain sense of, like, having defended their island from war for, like, you know, uh, ten centuries. They reject all foreigners on some level. So you'll, and then I got to America, and it was like... I was this Indian brown kid, and it was like... Americans are like... Uh, we don't know where you're from. We've never heard of that place. You're just American now. You know what I mean? So, like, the opposite is true. Like, like Americans think of the rest of the world the way New Yorkers think of the rest of America. Like, they just don't. They don't think about it, you know? So, On the subject of, of uh, American exceptionalism, tell me about the International <laughs> House of Patel. Yes. So my dad came to America, to Florida, on a sort of reconnaissance mission because he wanted to movie here and he had a buddy who lived in Tampa that's how we ended up there and so he came and, and I guess somebody took him out for brunch and he'd never had brunch before because in England brunch was not a thing it was a very American idea this sort of and he thought it was this third meal so he thought it was a combination of breakfast and lunch and he was like I remember he called us and he sort of was like in America they have so much food that between breakfast and lunch they stop eat again they have another meal <laughs> They can't eat the food fast enough. <laughs> so he thought like pancakes and the whole thing and the, you know, the, the $7.95, all you can eat, you know. So he fell in love with brunch and he moved all of us to America <laughs> mostly because of brunch. Like there was all the other stuff, like, you know, everything else, but mostly brunch. And, and then we would go on road trips because as an immigrant family, you, that's what you do. Like, you go on road trips. And then he would make these T-shirts uh, so he could get discounts at IHOP that said International House of Patel. Which is not your last name. Which is not even our last name. <laughs> but Americans don't know the difference. So it was like... But he would try to get a, a, a discount at any IHOP that we... And whenever we saw the blue and white thing, it would... Huh. He'd pull over and we'd stop and we'd all put on our T-shirts and go in. And, and then he'd be like, ah, ah, you know, brand loyalty. Like he wanted, he wanted a discount, you know. Well, I have a surprise for you. Our after show party is at the IHOP in Clackamas. Oh, good. Yes. Thank you. So you'll be very at home there. Hold on. Asif Manvi is with us. We've got to take a short break here on Livewire Radio. We will be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot, makers of the Jarvis Standing Desk. And now, if you want a smaller footprint, but you still want the stability of a desk with some real substance, there's the Jarvis Jr., just as strong as its dad. But it takes up almost half the space, and it's adjustable at the touch of a button. So you can stand when you're feeling like the go-getter you are and sit when you dang well please. Because you're an adult and you can make your own choices. The Jarvis Jr., allowing the floor space challenged to stand prouder. Get more information at ergodepot.com. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI, Public Radio International. We're talking with Asif Manvi. He's part of the HBO show The Brink. He's also got a book out called No Lands Man. Um, you write in the book about idolizing Omar Sharif mm. when you were a kid because he was like the first guy who kind of looked like you who you saw playing the lead role. Yeah. And then um, in Dr. Zhivago. And then you actually got to meet him, right? How did that go? Well, so growing up as a kid, I... I I wanted to be an actor, and I used to watch Happy Days, and I thought I wanted to grow up and be the Fonz. Like, that was my sort of... It was the coolest thing in the world to me. I didn't, I didn't know where Milwaukee, Wisconsin was. I just thought it was probably the coolest place in the world. And, and it is. And, and Yeah. And um, so... But then my mother told me about another actor named Omar Sharif, 
And uh, she was like, Omar Sharif is better than Fonz, you know. And so she sort of wanted me to, you know, uh, like, and so I never heard of him. I thought he was like another kid, because Indian parents will do this where they'll compare your success to any other Indian kid that they know. If there's Indian people, you know what I'm talking about. So they'll be like, if you do something, then it's like, oh, you're Sunil down the street did, like, you know, he got five A's if you come home with four, you know. So I thought Omar Sharif was like some other Indian kid. Then my mom was like, oh, he's better at, act, at acting than you are, you know. So for a long time, I thought I was going to meet Omar Sharif and then punch him in the face. Yeah. Because he was like fat and privileged or whatever, you know what I mean? And, yeah. But then I realized who he was when I watched Dr. Zhivago and thought, oh my God, he's the first brown person that I've ever seen in a Hollywood movie, like who is like not a servant, you know, or, or something. And so years later, I moved to New York and I'm a uh, waiter. Uh, and, and I was passing hors d'oeuvres around at this cocktail party and there was Omar Sharif. And so I went up to him and I, and I spoke to him very briefly. You know, Dr. Zhivago... It changed my life, because it did. And, and he looked at me and he said, really, mine too. <laughs> and it was kind of, you know, it was kind of a moment. I just was I so amazed that you had the guts to break out of your job at that moment of being the, you know, waiter or yeah. bartender. Because that is totally frowned upon, right? When you're working oh. an event to then go like, oh, hey, by the way, I just want to tell you. Love your work, Omar. Yeah, yeah. No, I could have gotten fired. It was, it was definitely one of those things where... But, you know, this was something I had waited for my entire life was to meet this guy. And so when I met him, I, I just... I, I went for it. So you then spent a good number of years trying to sort of make it, I guess, in, in acting, in television, yeah. in theater, and the like. When did things start to kind of change for you? When did you feel like it was really coming together? So... Um, I got to New York, I was, you know, doing the auditions and doing regional theater and working and, uh, you know, getting bit parts on Law and & Order and stuff. And, and then um, I wrote a one-man show, essentially, uh, called Sakina's Restaurant. And we did it for like six months. And that really sort of changed my career at that point, um, where suddenly people knew who I was and people came to see the show and I started getting cast in bigger things. You know, so that was like an inf- a major inflection point for me in my career. But it sounds like that show was a reaction to a lot of kind of lousy parts and lousier auditions for things that were very stereotypical. Can you explain what patanking is? Right. So, yeah, so mostly what I would end up doing is going out for very stereotypical Indian roles and um, me and, uh, and a friend of mine, uh, an actress named Sakina Jaffrey, who some of you might know from House of Cards, uh, the two of us sort of would, would chat about our audition experiences, and she came up with this term called patanking. And what patanking really is is the sound of the Indian accent to the American ear. So it's like patank, 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 right? So that's, and you know, you're embarrassed, but you, you know that's what it sounds like to you when Indian people are speaking to each other. So we would... They're all like, absolutely. Um, I don't know why that's funny. Isn't that what that... Um, so, Sakina would say, like, she would say, did they make you patank at the audition? Because they'd invariably... That's a verb. Right. So, you'd invariably go in and they'd be like, you know, could you do, you'd do the audition and then they'd be like, could you do one with the accent? Because they always wanted to know if you could do... So, we would always get really frustrated and that was mostly my experience for the first, like, several years in New York City of, like, auditioning was... And so out of that, I, I ended up going up for all these roles, stereotypical, so, you know, the, the cab driver or the, the guy with a turban sitting on a carpet, you know, like, stuff like that, or the snake charmer or whatever. And, and, and then I thought, well, I, I want to write... I want to do roles, go up for roles that, like, my white counterparts are going up for, like, actual real people. And... Um, and there were none in, in written, you know, so I started writing them. I, and, I, and I wrote a show, essentially, that came out of just having to, trying to do characters who were multidimensional. And so I just started with my family and ended up writing these characters, sort of John Leguizamo style, um, and, and created a show with six, seven different Indian characters, all part of a family that owned a restaurant. How did you get The Daily Show, and, and how did that change your life? Um, it, was, it was one of those weird days when I was sort of sitting on a stoop 
writing a letter to my ex-girlfriend who I just found out had gotten engaged. And so I was in this miserable funk where I was like writing that classic letter that we've all written, you know, like, I messed up, I I should have been better, you know. And so I was writing that letter and my manager calls and says, you have an audition for The Daily Show. Um, they're looking for a brown guy. you were guy. like, see ya. Yeah, yeah. I was like, whatever. I'm trying out for the Daily Good Show. Good luck with your marriage, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, they said, it was a weird call because they said, the Daily Show is looking for a Middle Eastern guy. And, and I thought, this is either the best Homeland Security sting operation I've ever heard of in my entire life. Yeah. Or they actually are looking for a real Middle Eastern actor or something. And so I went down there, met and walked into the studio. I met Jon Stewart, who, you know, I used to watch the show before I was on it. Then I stopped, you know, watching it. Sure. It has has a liberal bias. I won't lie to you. Um, So I... You know, John Stewart, big fan. I was like, I walk in and, and, and he gives me this copy and he's like, just let, let's just read this. And so I, I read it and, you know, and I don't know how to do this. I'd never really envisioned being a Daily Show correspondent. I, I sort of had gone to drama school, you know, and I was like, I do Chekhov and Ibsen and, you know, and I'm doing commercials, you know, like I was sort of that guy. And... Suddenly I was doing this thing and, and I did it and I just did my best Stephen Colbert impression. That was, <laughs> that was the only thing I knew to do where I just arched my eyebrow and sort of cocked my, you know, and like kind of had a sort of arched kind of attitude. And John turned to me and said, congratulations, welcome to The Daily Show. And I got right the, then. Right there, I got the job. Like right there. And um, I thought it was a prank. I, I really was like, because jobs don't happen like that. But then I was on the show that night. And, and it was crazy because nobody in my family or none of my friends or anybody knew. Because I auditioned at 3 o'clock and we tape at 6. So between those... So like literally I auditioned and then like at 6 o'clock I was taping the show. And the weirdest thing was that like I... We, are, we rehearse around 4 o'clock every day. And so when I went into the rehearsal, I look out into the audience and there's this guy sitting in the audience with a baseball cap. And usually in our rehearsals, it's just a few producers and writers. And this guy, I'm looking at him, and I realize that it's Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> so not only did I... And at first I thought, well, Bruce Springsteen works at The Daily Show. That's really weird. Yeah. And so it turned out that he was just visiting for the day, and his son wanted to see the show, and so he came by, and, you know, who's going to say no to Bruce Springsteen, right? So, he came, so I was on the show that night. Bruce Springsteen comes backstage and congratulates me and is like, I heard it was your first time. And, and I said something stupid like, you're really good too, you know? Like it, was, it was like something lame, you know? I didn't know what to say. I, he was like, that was really funny. I'm like, you're a good singer, you know? Um, and uh, so that happened. And then, and then literally that 11 o'clock that night, I, people just start calling me and they're like, were you just on the Daily Show? There was... There's a guy that looks a lot like you on The Daily Show tonight. And, it was, and, then, you know, and then John just had me come back again and again. And one of them was the ex-girlfriend, I assume, right? I, she, she, I, damn it, she never called. Uh, well, the rest, as they say, is history. Check out Asif Manvi on The Brink. Also check out his book, No Land's Man. Asif Manvi, thank you so much for thank being here. Thank you. Live Wire. That's how I got this job, too, by the way. I showed up. Bruce Springsteen said, congratulations. And I was sitting here on stage. This week's edition of Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, featuring foods free of hydrogenated fats, artificial colors, preservatives, and sweeteners. Because they're gross. We're just going to come out and say it. Sorry if we offended any hydrogenated fat lovers out there. We're finally taking a stand on this radio show. More information can be found at WholeFoodsMarket.com. We're talking about diving right in this week on the show, and sometimes that is not actually advisable. So we asked our audience here at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, to tell us about the riskiest thing they've ever done. And here are a few of their submissions under the heading, I can't frickin' believe I did that. (laughs) Listener Penelope said, I quit a six-figure job in the financial service industry to start my own business, raising exotic frogs. 
My husband left me, but the frogs are better anyway. Um, uh, listener Michael said, I chased a bear to get my food back. I hope that was a really good granola bar, bro. I found my shredded empty backpack the following morning. Um, listener Tolly says, I made out with Tom's of Maine's son while wearing speed stick. Uh, I guess we'll just leave that there. We'll come back to this little pile in a, in a few minutes. Our musical guest this hour, Joseph, is not a dude who's just trying to, like, go Madonna or share on it. It's a trio of women who named the band after a town in eastern Oregon, also after, after Joseph from the Bible, and their grandfather, Joe. Their harmonies and haunting melodies were described as Wind Whispering in the Pines by the Stranger newspaper. Their debut record is Native Dreamer Kin. Please welcome Joseph to Livewire. Joseph, right here on Live Wire Radio. 
Their record is Native Dreamer Akin. We are talking about diving right in this hour, which is something our head writer, Courtney Hameister, did recently. Um, well, technically, she kind of gently eased into it because it was a sensory deprivation flotation tank. And we should mention, we have some flotation tank fans here. An underserved demo, I think, in public radio. We should mention two things that Court does not like. Enclosed spaces and water that other people have been in. So she was a natural for this assignment. Here with a report on how it went, please welcome Courtney Hommeister to the stage. So when a friend suggested I go to a flotation tank to kickstart my creative thinking, I thought she was nuts. As a somewhat anxious claustrophobe, I'm not one of those people who think 90 minutes alone with their thoughts in a tiny dark tank of tepid water sounds appealing. Those people probably enjoy spending time with themselves. Personally, I've had it up to here with my crap, and the thought of spending an hour and a half alone with me sounds like a not-so-fresh hell. That being said, I'd heard great things about the benefits of floating. People say that they have epiphanies they never could have had while not naked and wet and in the dark. <laughs> Supposedly, when you cut out all sensory input, you can shut down that lizard part of your brain that's always on alert for a dude with a knife or a coworker with a metaphorical knife <laughs> or a lump somewhere a lump shouldn't be. So once that holy crap, I'm going to die part of your brain quiets down, supposedly the rest of your brain is free to imagine great things. Or in my case, uh, wonder why Pharrell Williams thinks a room without a roof is happy. <laughs> there, are, there are really only three essential components to a room, and it's missing a really important one. So if that room is happy, that room is kidding itself. And I think we all know that. But I digress. So the tank center that I went to had three different sizes of tanks. They had wildly claustrophobic, mildly claustrophobic, and hey, this isn't at all claustrophobic. So uh, the, the smallest ones were these oasis tanks, and they were a combination sort of space pod slash giant George Foreman grill. And those actually looked like I'd come out in a year on a planet inhabited by acid-drooling aliens that would gnaw their way out of my chest after dinner. So I didn't choose those. I ended up choosing the largest room, which was about five by seven, and it's tall enough for you to stand up in, which is great for claustrophobics or anyone who's ever been held hostage in a car trunk and might be a little jumpy. Uh, pro tip, if you're going to be abducted and thrown into a trunk, choose an abductor with a car built after 2002. All of these cars have built-in lighted interior trunk releases. That is just a tip for the mildly jumpy. Uh, so I was surprised actually at how clean and inviting the pods were. When you open this space age pod door, you see a ceiling full of stars and glowing blue lights in the water. And this was really comforting for me. Um, I'm weirdly still afraid of the dark. Um, and especially pitch black pools of water that could suddenly fill with tiny eels that try to get into your ear canals and eat your brain. <laughs> super scared of that. Um, but weirdly, that didn't happen during my float, just to be clear. Um, it's just my overactive lizard brain. So once you get into the totally eel-free water, you turn the lights out, and you are in complete blackness. And the pool is filled with water that's heated to 93.5 degrees, and it's what they call skin receptor neutral. So what that does is it makes it difficult to feel where your body ends and the water begins. Um, if this idea freaks you out, you can actually reach over with one hand and touch your other hand to make sure it's still attached. <laughs> you need to do that. But I'm only afraid of the eel thing, so I wasn't afraid of spontaneously losing a limb, so I didn't need to do that. Um, and also... The water is mixed with 850 pounds of Epsom salts. And what that does is it causes you to float uh, like Sandra Bullock in Gravity, but without the constant shadow of impending death. Um, and for somebody who has, who's struggled with weight issues her whole life, I, I cannot stress enough the relief that weightlessness brings. Um, it's a version of what you get in a pool, but it's just effortless. You just lie there and the water holds you up. And you can't look down. It's pitch black so you can't look down and see what's sticking out of the water and kick yourself for that last burrito. <laughs> and all you hear is your own breath and the second when your breath runs out, you hear your heart. 
And for those of us who have trouble shutting off our brains and meditating, this is a tremendous help. The rhythm of your breath and heart almost force you to relax and disconnect. And disconnecting is something we've all forgotten how to do. There was a New York Times piece by Sherry Turkle last year called The Flight from Conversation that rang a little too true for me. She said, in it, she said that we've come as a culture to see being alone as a problem that needs to be solved. And the second we're alone for two seconds, we pick up our phones so we don't have to hang out with our own thoughts. And what we're missing out on is reflection, actually considering our lives and the people in it, how to organize it, how we want to spend our time, who we want to be, you know, thinking. <laughs> and, and for me, solitude is often a chance for my brain to go to places like the sea eels I mentioned earlier, or my tax debt, or, you know, dying alone and stuff, so I don't do it. I just don't, I don't like it. Um, but my experience with floating is that that stuff didn't really come up. Maybe my brain knew that this was an inappropriate time to bring it up. Um, and I didn't have a creative epiphany in the tank, but that doesn't mean that you won't. I did find myself more grounded than I'd been in a long time, and I was surprised to feel grateful for the brain space instead of miserable at having to hang out with myself. More than anything else, though, floating disconnected me from my screwed-up idea of my body and connected me to my actual body which I try to avoid thinking about because if I had to describe my relationship with it on Facebook, I would say, it's complicated. <laughs> Maybe if I float more, I'll uncomplicate it, which is important because I'm gonna have to live with my ass for the rest of my life. And unfortunately, my ass is gonna have to live with me too. And I've been dreaming of finding a peace between us since I was 14 years old. And maybe I can find it in a body of skin receptor neutral water. Um, I would recommend floating to anyone who, like me, needs training wheels for meditation and can only disconnect from technology if she's in a room filled with water. Um, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone who thought Altered States was a documentary because <laughs> you will not turn into a prehistoric monkey, and that would be disappointing for you. Uh, my one complaint would be that the music they used to let me know that my time was up sounded like that ominous blah from Inception. Um, it was like my lizard brain was awakened by an air horn and she just woke up ready to take off her earrings and cut a <laughs> But as I've said before, this is probably an issue that's unique to me because I'm a little high strung. Did I mention that? Thank you. The do's and don'ts of sensory deprivation from our own Courtney Hameister. And wondering, why do we all feel so calm when we sit by the sea? Why do we do our best thinking in the shower? Why do I spend late nights looking at old wooden boats when I already have two that don't really work right? <laughs> These are all important questions, people. Mostly the one about my boat problem. Wallace J. Nichols is here to answer them. He's a marine biologist and wild water advocate his new book, Blue Mind, tries to explain the psychological and physical reasons we're also enamored of and soothed by water. Please welcome Wallace J. Nichols to Livewire. Hey, Wallace. Welcome to the show. We're really glad you're here. I, you. I found the idea of the book so fascinating. The premise of this book is that there is something a physiological that happens to us when we're near the water that makes us more focused and more at peace and all of those things. What, what does the science in this book actually tell us about what happens when we're near the water? The best way to understand our, our blue mind is to first understand your red mind. And your red mind is... A commie? Yeah, right, that. <laughs> so once you understand that, you can understand yeah. the blue. I try to keep most of the humor <laughs> Cold War era yeah, right. on the show if I can. So, um, Red mind would be when you're, when you're amped up, when you're nervous, when you've got incoming information from multiple screens, you've got deadlines. It's kind of the way we live our lives these days, where you, you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is check your text messages or, or your email, and maybe that's the, also the last thing you do at the end of the day. And your day is just full of incoming inf information of various kinds. Contrast that to blue mind, which is where you step away from the device uh, shut down the incoming information uh, and let your, your auditory system, you know, the, the part of your brain that handles language and sound, have a break. 
uh, you let your visual system have a break, so you're looking out at, at the water, a lake, a river, the ocean, or perhaps floating in a, a dark pod, uh, right. as the case may be. That's sort of extreme blue mind. Uh, <laughs> and then maybe you're floating, and maybe you give, up, uh, the, you give up gravity. And so the part of your brain that coordinates all of your muscles that allow you to sit in a stool or stand gets a break. That's a lot of bandwidth that your brain doesn't just shut off, it goes into what's called default mode network and you start doing mind wandering and you get creative and you get insightful and sometimes you have aha moments and that's blue mind. How do you measure this stuff though scientifically? Because you're talking about what a lot of us have experienced anecdotally. Right, so you can measure what's going on inside your brain by looking at um, your blood, looking at your saliva, measuring levels of cortisol, You can measure it using an EEG, which measures the electricity in your brain. Or you can slip yourself into this kind of giant donut-shaped magnet called an fMRI that measures the oxygen flow in your brain. And so those are various kinds of technologies. And we put it all together, we can get kind of a read on how our brain responds to various kinds of stimuli, whether it's music, wine, or in this case, water. Um, We're talking to Jay Nichols. His book is Blue Mind, which looks to explain psychologically and physically what's happening for us when we get near the water. Um, You have a creek that runs behind your house, Mill Creek, which you sound fairly obsessed with. Well, I'm made out of Mill Creek, it turns out. That's where we get the water we drink. Uh, Our kids are made out of Mill Creek. That's where they get the water they drink. And so we're, we're kind of aware of what happens around Mill Creek. And we, that's the sound we hear at night when we fall asleep is the sound of Mill Creek. Although we're in the midst of this terrible drought and the sound of Mill Creek is a lot quieter these days. Is there a measurable impact, do you think, um, and I know that you're not necessarily a, a climatologist, <laughs> but is there a, me- a measurable effect, do you think, on the people? Absolutely. If, if water is your source of stress reduction and you don't have access to that water for whatever reason, whether it's a drought, pollution, or just a a big wall or fence, um, that that medicine that you use to relax becomes unavailable. In my case, my my 10-year-old daughter used to fall asleep to the sound of Mill Creek, and then that sound went away. So now she has an app that she listens to that sounds like Mill Creek. It's kind of heartbreaking, imagining that times millions of people uh, that, that soothing aspect of water is, is also one of the casualties of uh, the environmental problems and things like droughts. Lest your daughter feel bad, no joke, today I paid $5 to buy an MP3 of a box fan, eight hours of a box fan to put on my computer to listen to. It's not a fan, it's the sound. A guy in Texas recorded a box fan for eight hours put the file on the internet and sold it to me for $5 today. I, I, can, I can understand that you like the sound, but the $5 part is really, that's, that's kind of I could of have expensive. bought a fan, really, yeah. now that yeah. I think about it. <laughs> kind of unlimited fan sounds if I go that way with it. Um, Jay, you handed me a blue marble backstage before we yeah. came out here. What's that all about? Well, the, the conversation about the state of life on our planet, you know, our environment, is often full of, of guilt and fear. And I I felt like we needed to inject some gratitude. And there are a lot of people working really hard in in, in small and large ways. And I just started sharing blue marbles with people just as a simple way to say thanks for what they're doing. And then I asked them to pass them on to someone that they want to say thank you to. And now there's a million blue marbles going around the world. Um, The Dalai Lama got one. uh, And the Pope got one because we like to keep things kind of you know, even like that. Sure. Uh, Jane Goodall got one and Harrison Ford and, and you've got one and they represent what we look like from a million miles away. We look like a little blue marble. We're a water-based planet. And it's just a little reminder, a little nudge. to. I mean, because obviously we, we tend to focus on the land parts of this planet because that's the part that we live on. And yet, as you point out in the book, this is a water planet. It's like if somebody... If Earth robbed a bank, they would say it was watery. Yeah, right. Like, that would be the short description of what's happening yeah. on this planet. Yeah. It's much more water than it is land. Well, what do you want people to do then? I think people should touch their water, get near it, get in it uh, as much as possible. Um, 
Maybe it's been a while since you jumped in your water. Maybe it's, it's been a long time. Maybe never. Uh, figure out how to get back in your water. And if something is stopping you, maybe the water isn't healthy, um, work to make it healthy enough so that you can get in it. And then once you do that, take somebody with you. Uh, in, invite your friend. Take your family members. It is neurochemistry that's happening. And our water is medicine. If we take care of it, it's available. I'm very optimistic about what we can do when we put our mind to it. Yeah, we have some big problems, but I'm going to just keep coming back to that, that uh, fall in love with your water. F- uh, final question. How would you get enough money for a million marbles? Yeah. How much well, does that cost? <laughs> surprisingly, not very much. They're, they're, uh, they're small orbs of recycled glass made by Marble King in West Virginia. So shout out for the last remaining U.S.-based marble manufacturer. And new sponsor of Livewire, Marble King. Wallace J. Nichols, the book is Blue Mind. Thank you so much, man. All right, we have a couple of more dispatches from, uh, from our audience here at Revolution Hall, things that they can't believe they did on the subject of diving right in. Um, Mark says, I stole my principal's car, took it apart, and put it together around the school's flagpole. And then he draws like a long line and an arrow to the words, I got suspended. Um, this person uh, remained anonymous, um, although it sounds like it turned out okay for them. I told my best friend I have feelings for him. He feels the same. We've been together now for five months. Here's to love. And um, another person who remains anonymous says, uh, attending a live wire taping. I'll let you know. So there you go. Those are some things that were dangerous that our listeners have done. Uh, this week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, featuring 38 nonstops from Portland and adding Minneapolis-St. Paul in February so you can fly from Livewire's home to the Prairie Home (laughs) in just over three Fresh Air episodes. (laughs) We may have violated three or four trademarks in this particular ad. Alaska Air, keeping you connected nonstop. More information at alaskaair.com. And now, please welcome back to the stage... Joseph. Give me your body. Give me your mind. Wanna cross your borders or wanna take my time? I know the feeling when you're standing beside. And when I face you, my door's open wide Can't get it, can't get it, can't get close enough to be close to you Can't get it, can't get there, it inches a canyon I'll pay my attention if you invite me inside Show me your country, I'll be still and
That's Joseph. And that's our show. Okay. Back in the safety of my little green room back here backstage at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Um, that was a fun show. I'm holding my blue marble from Wallace J. Nichols. And um, I'm not sure who I'm going to give this to, but uh, I think it's a pretty cool idea. By the way, thanks to Wallace and also Asif Manvi, the hilarious Asif Manvi, and the amazing harmonies and uh, musicality of the band Joseph, uh, made for a, a really cool show here. Also, we got to say thanks to the other folks who made this possible. Our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hommeister is our head writer and a producer. Jim Brunberg is also producer, editor, and member of our house band, along with Dave Jorgens and Jonathan Newsom and Ned Failing. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team and usually our announcer. Um, get well soon, buddy. Although we, uh, again, were ably, ably announced by Mr. Alex Falcone, who is also part of our writing team. Go check him out at Late Night Action if you happen to be in the Portland area. It's a great show that he's part of. Also, uh, Sean McGrath is part of the writing team as well. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is done by D. Neil Blake. Lighting by Greg Cardi. Photography is done by the wonderful Jenny Baker. Thanks also to our marketing director, Laura Haddon, our development director, Kim Bergstrom, and our operations manager, Lauren Masterson. Elia Unverzat is our talent coordinator. Emily Hempson uh, is our transportation for talent, and we really do appreciate that. It's vital that the talent gets to Revolution Hall to be part of Livewire, and that's what Emily helps out with. Uh, Emmy Vaughn and Chris O'Neill are our wonderful, long-suffering volunteers, uh, along with Joseph Linus Jordan, who helped us out on this show as well, running merch. More information about our show and how to become a member of Livewire can be found over at livewireradio.org. Also, you can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I'm Luke Burbank. Uh, hopefully, I'll see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review. And if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.